From Sector 001 in the Alpha Quadrant, this is the Omega Directive, Episode 12, with Melinda Snodgrass. Okay, my guest today was born in Los Angeles, but moved to New Mexico. Yes, I'm reading from your um, page bio. Right ahead. My guest today was born in Los Angeles, raised in New Mexico. Right ahead. And is the writer of several episodes of The Next Generation. She also served as a series story editor during a second and third seasons. And has contributed to produce scripts for the series Odyssey 5, The Outer Limits, Sequest, DSV, and Reasonable Doubts, and was a consulting producer on The Profiler. She also helped co-create the Wild Card series with George R.R. R. Martin, who unceremoniously apparently gave her the nickname of The Snod. She is the one only Miss Melinda in, in Snodgrass. Melinda, thank you. Welcome for... Welcome. Thank you for doing this. Okay. Well, hi. Thank you for having me. I'm your host, as always, Steve Atwell. And well, hi. Thank you for having me. Right so far, let's try to start. Uh, let's get it right from here on in. Okay, Melinda, you you grew up in. You were born in L.A., but you grew up in New Mexico. Yes. Yes. Yeah, we moved when I was just an infant, so it's really been my home for most of my life until I got my first job back, on Star Trek uh, and with your moved out to L.A. for a, a while. So. Um, according to your bio on your home page, you grew up studying music and uh, singing and dancing and all. Was that at an early age? How early were you when you first started showing all the music and the well, talent? Well, my dad, um, my dad was a very accomplished musician. He'd had a Dixieland jazz band back before he became a staid businessman. Um, he was very musical, played five instruments and sang. And uh, I inherited his abilities, first, which is good because my mother couldn't carry a tune in a bucket. Um, so and dad encouraged me uh, to sing from the time I was tiny. And in fact, uh, arranged for me to start taking voice lessons when I was about 12 years old, I think he was waiting for my voice to, you know, start to mature. You don't want to start singing seriously too young. Um, and his hope was that I would be a jazz musician the way he was. But I had a classical voice, uh, classic. And he, I needed a classical trainer. And fortunately, the gentleman he sent me to to study with who said, I can't teach her and I'll wreck this voice. You need to find a classical instructor. So he did. And um I started studying with her when I was about 14 and uh, studied opera and and leader and all the all the classical music, which I had loved from childhood. Um, I mean, I love jazz with my dad listening to it with him, but I had this affinity for classical music. So I studied with Jean Grealish for a number of years, and then um, she recommended that I attend the Conservatorium der Stadt Wien, which is the Conservatory of Vienna in Austria um, to study opera. And I went over, I was uh, 19. Um, I had done a year of university and, you know, started studying German and then went off to Vienna. My dad was great. My dad always let me, you know, try to pursue anything that interested me. Um, So I went to Europe and, um, you know, I had a very nice voice. I had a sort of operetta style voice. I mean, once I got to Vienna 
and to the conservatory, it became apparent that I didn't have that one tenth of one percent, you know, voice that it takes for the grand opera stage. I'm also not exactly built for it. I'm I'm five feet two and you know weigh about a hundred pounds and uh, and and you need a you need a big rib cage. You need you need to have a lot of body to support you know a three hour opera. So after studying for about a year and a half, um, I decided to come back to the United States and finish my education. Uh, which is what I did. And, uh, you know, I took a minor in music and a major in history at the university. So that was sort of got me back from from doing the singing. And and I'd studied ballet. And, and uh, even after I got back to the States, I did a whole lot of musical comedy um, and, you know, studied tap and jazz and ballet and, you know, did point, which has ruined my left foot. But, you know, that's that's what happens. Um, and. Uh, even all through law school, I kept on singing. Um, you know, I was Guinevere in Camelot. Um, you know, I was the princess in, uh, in uh, the student prince. I mean, I did a lot of musical comedy shows while I was studying uh, studying right. law. Because that was after I finished that, my degree in history, um, I went on to law school. Graduation, you practiced law for three years, uh, first working for Sandia National Laboratories, and then with a corporate law firm. But discovered that you you didn't. You'd love the law, but you didn't love lawyers. <clears throat> yeah, that pretty much sums it up. Um, you know, I did very well in law school, and uh, I was really, my interests were constitutional law and legal history. And uh, a mentor of mine had recommended that I go on and get, God help me, a doctorate of law. You know, go past the JD. He wanted me to go to Harvard and you know, I was just burnt out. I'd been in school since I was like five so years how old. Did you get into and writing? I was like, something? I don't want to go to school anymore. Yes. How did I get to writing? Oh, um, I had a very good friend um, named Victor Milan, uh, who sadly passed away this year at way too young an age. Um, and Victor and I met while I was entering law school and he was just back from backpacking around Europe and we became very good friends and you know he sang in musicals with me and you know we just hung out and he introduced me to the writing community in New Mexico which consisted of Fred Saberhagen, Roger Zelazny, Susie McKee Charnas, I mean these incredible incredible writers and um, I fell in love with them they were the most interesting people I'd ever been around I was practicing law at the time and you know, it was, felt very boring and dry compared to these amazing people. So I said to Vic, I'd really like to try to write. And he said to me, I bet you could if you wanted to, because you're you're very artistic because I had the music and the dance. And so I started writing in secret. And um, then he and I would meet and I would show him my pages and he would give me notes and, t you know, show me how to improve on them. And then ultimately, I just decided that I didn't want to be an unhappy lawyer for the rest of my life. So I quit and I thought I'd take a swing at writing. And uh, I did. And it worked. And so I became a novelist. Um, and, you know, while I was working on breaking into science fiction, I, I, I wrote I wrote six romance novels under pseudonyms to pay my mortgage because, of course, I quit being a, a, working at the law firm. Um, and they were great because they kind of taught me you know, how to finish, you know, that the biggest problem many writers have or aspiring writers, they have like they'll start and they'll have like a 100 openings for things and they'll write three chapters and then they'll stall and quit. 
And by doing those romance novels, I learned how you just get it done. You, you outline your story, you get the thing sold, and then you write to the end and deliver it. And that was really very good training for me. And then in the other, in, in the meanwhile, while I was doing that, I was also working on a science fiction series, uh, that I ultimately sold. And, you know, that started that whole career. <laughs> so that was how I got into novel writing. It was all due to Victor Milan and the fabulous writers in New Mexico. Writing community there in uh, New Mexico. If you could please repeat the names of the authors so the people listening will know whose work to look for and read. Yeah, um, unfortunately, two of the people I mentioned have, have passed mm-hmm. away. Um, uh, one was Roger Zelazny, who is probably one of the great great science fiction writers of our field. Um, he wrote Lord of Light, the Amber series, um, Call Me Conrad, and it, just extraordinary, extraordinary novelist. Um, and then there was Fred Saberhagen, who wrote uh, the Holmes Dracula Files, the Berserker Chronicles, um, Book of Swords, and he and his wife, Joan, were, they invited me to come to their house after this autographing and join in with the writers, and that was when I fell in love with these people. There was also Susie McKee Charnas, um, who is a New Mexico author, and of course there was Victor, Victor Milan, who's, um, gosh, it's really sad to say, but three of the individuals I'm naming have all died, and <laughs> that's really sad. Um, but uh, Victor's last books were The Dinosaur Lords, so um, that was sort of my intro to the world. Now, George Martin had not yet moved down to New Mexico. He or he had just moved down shortly thereafter. And so I didn't get to know George until like a year or two after this um, consequential. Yeah, I should go know, back barbecue further, where I um, met all these writers. Question I usually ask but skipped over tonight or this, uh, this, this afternoon. But as a kid growing up, were you, in fact, a nerd even then? Oh, gosh, yes. Um, uh, my dad, the, he read aloud to me um, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, but all the exciting bits, you know, because I was like four and five. So he wouldn't read all the fish stuff, but he'd read all the adventure stuff. And he taught me to read before I went to school. And I remember the very first science fiction book I read all by myself was Edgar Rice Burroughs' A Princess of Mars. Um, and I fell in love with it. And there was this shelf in the library, the Ernie Pyle Library in Albuquerque, and they had one very tall, narrow shelf where the science fiction was was stored. And I started at A, and I just read my way through every single volume, A to Z. Um, and so I was I was in love with science fiction uh, from the time I was a kid. I dreamed about it, you know, always wanted to have a spaceship and <laughs> go visit other planets. And so when uh, when I was when I was little and suddenly this Star Trek show came on the air, um, it was like the you know, it was the realization of a dream to see a spaceship, you know, and people on a spaceship and 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 people that, you know, women and and people of color and and Russians and all these different people. And it was really inspiring. And, and I, you know, I fell in love with it. So but it was it was I was already right. a, I was already okay. a and your first before Trek even came along, I think the uh, circuit series. Yes, that was the first series of books that I sold about a federal court judge writing circuit in outer space. Um, 
I have to say, while I ended up not practicing law for very long, or I have never regretted getting the education because I have used that law degree in so much of my work uh, from the circuit trilogy. Of course, it it, you know, helped birth measure of a man, which got me my job on Star Trek. Um, and I have a series of books I write under a pseudonym as Philippa Bornakova, which is about a young woman lawyer working in a vampire law firm in Manhattan. So um, that that's like I, I can't. And, and I got my job on Reasonable Doubts, which was a legal show uh, because right. I was so how um, did you get to because I had been a, Hollywood been a lawyer or Star Trek. Okay, well, that is entire. I've been fortunate in my friends. I had Victor Milan encourage me to write books, and then George had moved down to New Mexico. Um, and I am talking about George R. R. Martin, um, Song of Ice and Fire, Game of Thrones, etc. He had moved down to New Mexico, and uh, you know, got hung out with our gang, and uh, we got him into role playing, which was uh, we loved and, uh, uh, you know, pin and dice role playing games. Yeah, we played Dungeons and Dragons. Um, we played things like Morrow Project, and because we were a whole series of writers, we, um, we a lot of our game masters would make up fabulous games. Walter John Williams is another very famous New Mexico writer. He was a great game master. He run a, ran a Ro- Roman Republic campaign for us for about ten years, and we just played all kinds of games. But at one Christmas. Um, I sort of have to go back a little and tell you the story. So one Christmas, Victor gave George a Christmas gift of a game called Superworld. And um, go ahead. Uh, actually, I guess I'm telling you the wild card, but it kind of all fits together uh, because George was running Superworld for us and we were playing it obsessively. George had been you know, a comic book fan from the time he was a kid. And uh, he would stay over at my house after a night of gaming because we would play till like two and three in the morning. And he came out one morning and he said, there's got to be a way to make money off this obsession. And uh, then he and I sat over breakfast and, you know, I went out and fed the horses and came back in and cooked. And then we sat down and we worked out the wild cards universe. We came up with the sandbox and then we invited other writers to come play in our sandbox. We created this shared world about superheroes in a very real world setting. So now we're working together. You know, we're still playing playing uh, role playing games, but George and I are doing wild cards. We're writing for wild cards. And then George was given the opportunity to go out to Hollywood and work on a show called The New Twilight Zone. And then after that, he went to work on Beauty and the Beast. And he'd been there for about a year, maybe six months a year. And my phone rang and it was George. And he said, uh, hey, Snod, I think you'd be really good at the screenwriting thing. And if you want to try it, um, if you write a script, I'll show it to my agent. So I went, okay, that sounds cool. Um, so I, I went ahead and, um, I looked around at what was out there and I thought about doing LA law because of my background. And I thought, well, it looks a little too tightly plotted. And I didn't want to write a Beauty and the Beast script because that seemed like it was very unfair to George. Um, if I wrote a really bad script and I was forcing my friend to have to tell me I'd written a really bad script. And if he showed it to his boss, then the boss was going to say, why are you showing me this terrible script? And Next Generation had just started. And since I had been a Trek fan in, as a child, I thought, well, I'll take a look at this. So I started watching the show. Um, 
And I found the most interesting character to be Data, which is kind of a sad commentary when you think about it, um, that the robot was the most interesting character. But um, I was fascinated with the character. And I came up with this idea um, that the Dred Scott decision, which was an infamous Supreme Court decision, would work very well as regards data. Dred Scott held that a runaway slave was not a person, but he was property and could be returned to his slave master. And I thought, what if data is ruled to be the property of Starfleet Command rather than as an individual with rights in his own right? And um, now, meanwhile, George had told me that this spec script that I would write would be merely my calling card. Um, he said, you never, ever, ever, ever sell your spec script. Um, all it does is get you in. If they like your script, they'll have you come in and then you can pitch other ideas to the show. And I knew this idea I had was really good. Um, and I called George out in L.A. and I said, look, I've got this idea and I think it's pretty spectacular. And if I'm never going to sell this script, I'm not sure I want to waste it writing a spec. And maybe I should write one of these other ideas and do that. Um, and George gave me the single best piece of advice I've ever gotten um, as a writer. He um, he said to me, never hoard your silver bullet, meaning lead with the very best thing you can do that you're the most passionate about. And so I thought, OK, I'll do it. So I wrote The Measure of a Man and I gave it to George and he gave it to his agent. And then the writer strike hit <laughs> and it was we were, everybody was on for six months and I forgot about it. And then after the strike ended, I got this phone call from George's agent saying um, Morris Hurley, who runs the writer's room on track, wants to meet with you. Can you be in L.A. You know, day after tomorrow? Uh, so I did. Flew out. And, uh, you know, met Maury. He asked me about myself. I told him some stuff. I said, well, I have some other ideas for scripts. And, and he, he shushed me, literally put his finger to his lips and went, shh. And he pointed at this big whiteboard on the wall behind him that had mm -hmm. the list of upcoming episodes they were going to shoot. And Measure of a Man was up there. Um, so that was I sold my spec script. And then I went over to George's office at Beauty and the Beast, which was just down from Paramount Studios, not that far away. George says my feet didn't touch the floor when I came in after and told him I'd sold it. Um, and then a variety of things happened. And then they wanted they wanted me to come back to L.A. and get some notes on the script. And after the end of that note session, about three hours of Maury and Rick giving me notes, Maury said to me, um, I'm going to hire you and you start on Monday. And this was on a Thursday. So I came back to New Mexico, packed up my life, found a house sitter and uh, for for my animals and drove back to L.A. and went to work. So that's how I got into Hollywood. Um, and my, my advice to people is if you are offered an opportunity, take the risk. You know, always take the risk because you, right. you never know and what might happen. Good, good and that was lesson a lesson learn. my dad had so always taught me too. if I may, The Measure of a Man is well regarded as one of the best episodes of the entire Next Generation run. And you are also credited with what's considered to be perhaps one of the worst episodes of the run up the long ladder. Right. <laughs> that was a trouble. That poor unfortunate script. It just, um, we didn't have the money to shoot it right, which was part of the problem. And, you know, 
that's what happens in television. You know, you, you have to, they had to make cuts for budgetary reasons. There were whole scenes that couldn't be done. And, you know, you just, you know, you roll with it. It's television. Um, and things happen on everything you ever do. So, um, you, you just kind of soldier on because, uh, you're going to have the you're going to have the oh, let's do it's a wonderful life or let's do a clip show, you know, because you don't have a script ready or there's a problem and things happen that are out of your control. So and when you're a story editor on a show, you you have very limited. So how did you go from just being on, a writer to being a so story editor? That's what happened. <laughs> oh. Uh, oh, well, that was my I was hired as story editor. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's their staff writer, which is the lowest position. Then there's story editor. Co-producer, producer, supervising producer, consulting producer, blah, 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 all these things. Basically, if you have writer in your title, it means you're the lowest possible person in the pecking order. Um, and then as you, you know, move up the ladder, you, they, they, you lose the writer title. So I was story editor, which was one step up, you know, from, from being a staff writer. Um, you make more money as a story editor. You get paid for your scripts in addition to your salary. And yeah, my that's nice. Uh, staff writers don't. They just uh, get paid a salary. They're trying to get anything uh, published or pr- produced. And she finally did sell a script, which was butchered horribly into uh, part of an episode. Yeah, I mean that that's the thing. And and I always tell people when I I do a lot of lectures um to screenwriting classes, colleges and high schools and I always say if you can't stand people touching your work, uh don't go to Hollywood because you're going to get rewritten. Um and and things are going to happen, you know, everybody's going to have an opinion. The studio, the network, the actors, the director, uh budgetary issues. I mean, things are going to happen and um so what you hope for a script, you know, you you may have something you think is wonderful and it can turn into, you know, garbage. <laughs> and uh, it's just and it's not because anybody's stupid. It's just sometimes, you know, the pressures and and the the problems of doing tele network television when okay, you so have to meet a certain deadline you know, I would like and to add a certain a budget to pause for a word from our sponsors. But as regular listeners know, I don't have any sponsors, but I will make up for it by playing a clip of an old uh, commercial that has some sort of connection to Star Trek. Register for a prospectus in the generating company's share offers. Call 0272-272-272. Now, of course, if I did have a sponsor, being having sponsorship means that I could improve my um, recording equipment. I could get a proper camera so I could do these things with video. And it would also mean that I'd be able to afford more travel so I could get to more conventions to meet more people and potential guests. Anyway, welcome back. Um, 
This is the Omega Directive. I'm still your host, Steve Atwell, and I am still here with Melinda Snodgrass, former writer, former story editor for Star Trek The Next Generation. So what led to you eventually leaving Star Trek? Was it just better job offers elsewhere or... Well, it was it was a tough show. I mean, it was um, it went through a lot of writers in that seven year run, as you may have noticed. And I was pretty burnt out at the end of the third season. And I really wanted to go home to New Mexico. And so I that was my plan. I was going to go back to New Mexico and go back to books um, because Star Trek was not an easy show. And then uh, I had no sooner gotten back to New Mexico than my agent called and said that uh the folks who were running Reasonable Doubts uh, wanted to interview me for a job. And so I flew back out to L.A. and took a meeting and, and got hired. I was the only attorney on on the staff of Reasonable Doubts. And since it was a police law show, um, you know, it was, they were they were sort of happy to have a lawyer. And, and that was it was a great experience. I learned a tremendous amount working on Reasonable Doubts. Uh, my boss, Bob Singer, was a writer, director very good director and, um, you know, taught me a lot about editing and um, just putting together a show, making a show. And um, I, I would have stayed there for years, except sadly, um, we got canceled at the end of this the second season, the season I worked on the show. Um, but, uh, yeah, NBC, we weren't getting enough people. We were only getting 20 million people, which, of course, is huge now in this era of streaming. But at the time, we didn't have the numbers. And so, um, sadly, that, that show ended. But uh, I really enjoyed doing it. I mean, I was working with, you know, two terrific actors and Mark Harmon and Marley Maitland. And it was a great writing staff. We had a lot of fun. And I, I think we made some very good television, you know, with the caveat that things always happen. You know, there's always one or two episodes that you're going, oh, dear, that didn't work. But um, but it was fun. I enjoyed doing it. So that was uh, that was I mean, the odd thing is that even though I've done, you know, I did Odyssey five and I wrote the one episode of Sequest and and um, and did a pilot that was a, that was a science fiction. I'm actually done much more work on lawyer cop shows than than I have on science fiction shows. So it's sort of unusual that I'm I'm known so much as a science fiction writer, even though my the bulk of my career has been spent on non science fiction projects in terms of actual time, you know. Yeah, you wrote for uh the reasonable analysis as well as the profiler mm -hmm. and the antagonist. Mm -hmm. Slider, Strange Luck, Odyssey 5, only to name a few, according to your um, bio at your website. Ladies and gentlemen, please go to her website. And you wrote an adaptation for Star Blazers. Yes, that was fun. <laughs> and you wrote a pilot for Star Command. Was that based on the video game? I'm sorry, I missed it. No, uh -uh, it wasn't. It was, um, they had asked me to come up with a pilot about a young young crew on a spaceship. And, and I did, and... Uh, we shot a two-hour pilot in Potsdam in the former East Germany, um, which was challenging because the wall had come down not too long before. And um, trying to connect an East German crew at this old studio was fabulous. So we shot on the set where they shot um, Metropolis and the Blue Angel. So it was a very historical thing. But we were trying to coordinate between a West German crew and East German crew um, the East German crew had not ever worked in the kind of pressure cooker of Hollywood. You know, they they were much more used to a, oh, it doesn't matter how long it takes to shoot something. And we were like, we've got 20 days to shoot a two hour pilot. So they were it was 
it was an interesting, I mean, we, it was something else. It was quite an experience. It's where I sort of began to learn about executive producing. Um, and so I, you know, was sitting with the accountant and learning about how the budget is going and telling the director, no, you can't go buy that thing because we're not going to spend that kind of money. Um, and, you know, interacting with the actors and dealing with them when they wanted to had a question about the script or, um, and running up and down the stairs from our offices down to the set. Um, so that was, that was the thing. It, 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 we filmed it and oh my God, the, the East German company that was supposed to be doing our special effects were a disaster because they were an architectural firm and they had no idea what they were doing. So then we had to redo all of the effects and, um, and there was a problem with editing, and so the I, they kept cutting. My director kept cutting scenes, of course, the character scenes. That's always what get cut. Somebody's like, well, why do we really need the scene of these two characters? And can we cut that? Um, and so we ended up 10 minutes short because my editor couldn't start editing. So then I had to write some filler. Oh, it was just, you know, oh, my God. <laughs> it was. But I learned a lot. Um, and, you know, we didn't get picked up to series. It was going to be on UPN, that brief network that existed for a few years and then disappeared. I think it kind of became the CW. Um, but I, I did learn a bunch. And then in addition, I've written a ton of other TV pilots that didn't get made, which is typical. Um, then I wrote feature films that didn't get made typical. Um, so, you know, that's uh, again, if you, if you can't stand not seeing something move forward, Hollywood is probably not the place for you. Right, right. And I've heard the similar from other folks who've had who've worked in the business. Anyway, if I get back for a moment to the uh, the measure of a man, according to your bio, the program has been shown in the Museum of Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence in Paris. Did they have you over for uh, to view it there or anything? No, uh, Jean uh, was invited to a conference there and saw it <laughs> and, and told me um, after he got back from Paris and said, you know, your episode is, you know, being shown there i don't know if it still is but at the time it was and uh um and and i ended up um being invited by a professor of artificial intelligence intelligence at usc he would use measure as the opening way to teach his class and then he would have me in to speak um and that was kind of fun i mean here i am with all these really bright computer guys and i have no idea how computers actually work so but i you know to talk about the sort of legal and ethical ramifications of artificial intelligence. So, um, so it, it's, you know, it's, it's interesting how far this, I've had uh, law students who've written papers about measure, you know, for their, for their law review class. And, um, you know, that episode has sort of gone into strange and different places. Well, okay. So according to your bio, you also have 2002, you took over the management of a small natural gas company that your father had been one of the founding members of. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have not turned your back. Are you still doing that? Yes, I am, actually. Um, I still manage the company. Um, it's small, and, uh, you know, it's kind of a labor of love because uh, I a number of these people are either the widows or the children of, of men that, you know, were my dad's business partners that I knew. And so it, it feels a little bit family still. Um, and, uh, and, and it kind of keeps the legal part of my brain uh, in, in practice, the businesswoman side of me, as well as the artist. So I like doing it. Yeah, but rest assured, ladies and gentlemen, she's not turned her back on writing. No. <laughs> uh, what have you been working on lately? Uh, uh, I understand there's a the revived uh, Wild Cards series. Yes, Wild Cards actually came back um, 
gangbusters uh, back in uh, like 2001. Uh, we invited in some new young writers, created some new young superheroes. We call them aces in wild cards. And um, we kind of I don't want to say reboot because that's not really what we did. We just went to the new young generation because the thing we do in wild cards is different from the comics is if people die and people age. Um, and they don't get to come back if they die and, uh, and they get old like normal people. So we brought in some new writers with new young characters and we've been exploring this new young generation. In fact, right now I'm writing for and doing editing an upcoming wild card books called, book called Three Kings that's set in Great Britain. Um, we just had one book set in Great Britain come out, um, in June called Knaves Over Queens. And it'll be available in the States, I think, right after the first of the year. Um, and we've got another wild card book coming out in October called Texas Hold'em. Um, we, we, we keep on going. I think we're going to have like, by the time this is all over, I think we'll have 30 books in, out, um, in wild cards. It's the longest running shared world anthology out there. Yeah, I think I read the first five volumes back in the day. Well, the, I would if people are interested, I would recommend that they pick up Inside Straight and uh, come forward from that. That's our new young generation. And, and I think after George and I went to Hollywood, we both got a lot better about handling wild cards. We sort of run it like a TV series in that we come up with what is the overarching plot of the of the of the season? And then we tell our writers this is what's going to be happening pitch episodes, i.e. stories to us, and then we craft, you know, how this thing goes together. Um, so I feel like we have a really good handle on on how Wild Cards operates. Um, well, how, how do you select um, who gets to uh, submit, or is it an open uh, submission policy, or people that... We pick writers, we invite them to join the consortium. We have a we have a legal document that writers sign in order to become a wild card writer. You sign over a char- your characters to the consortium, uh, so that we have sort of a I don't know how to, it's a consortium, you know, as, as the word indicates. We pick writers who are you know well established, um, and we're looking for people who are very collaborative and like to work in a very collaborative way with other writers and are not protective of their characters because the, the charm and fun of a shared world is we get to use each other's characters. Yeah, but so it's uh, primarily for already established authors? or Yes, this is not something where a new young writer can, uh, you know, pitch us that we just, uh, we, we tend to open it up every so many years to bring in fresh blood, um, but we we have a discussion about who we're going to invite. So George and I are sort of the, the keepers of that particular gate. And, uh, and it's you know, people we've met, people we've read. And, and again, personality is everything. Um, you know, somebody who's not willing to let their care, precious character be played with by other people is, you know, not going to be a fit for wild cards. Well, what can you tell us about the wild card in the movie? It's actually a TV series. Oh, it was going to be a movie, which it never was built for because it's, you know, with this many books and this many characters, it's kind of, you know, like the Marvel or DC universe. It's huge. Um, and then fortunately, they decided that it would work much better as a TV series. And so we are um, things are happening. And I can't give you too much detail because our network has not yet made their press release. And so until they make the press release, I can't say anything. But suffice it to say, it is happening. It is exciting. It is cool. I'm I'm one of the executive producers on the show. I will be in the writer's room. Um, And uh, I can't wait.
you know, hopefully we will we will be hard at work very soon. Well, can you say which network, perhaps? No, I cannot. <laughs> That's what I cannot tell you. <laughs> That's what I um, is uh, is still under wraps. Okay, I have a couple more questions along these lines, and I understand what you can't talk about, but thanks to uh, uh, you know inquiring minds, is it going to be um, on broadcast, cable, or streaming? I'm going to plead the fifth. <laughs> I just I can't. I just can't say too much. Um, I wow. really do have to wait for this press release to come out before I can before I can give people some detail. But it should be happening soon. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. I guess that's as far as I can go at this point. Yep. But I didn't ask about stars or writers or anything, so. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. <clears throat> okay. So what are you working on currently besides? Um, I am finishing my Imperial Saga, which is my big space opera series. Um, three books are out, um, The High Ground, In Evil Times, and The Hidden World. I've delivered the fourth book, which is called The Currency of War, and I'm writing the fifth and final book in the series called Breaking the Yoke. I'm really having a blast with it. I, I came up with this idea a number of years ago and wrote, attempted to write a novel, and it didn't work. Everybody has a trunk novel. It doesn't work. But the universe was really interesting to me. And so I figured out how to tell the story and came back to it. And uh, I'm so thrilled with my publisher. It's Titan Books in London. And uh, because I'm a screenwriter, I plot everything. And I plotted it all the way through all five books from the beginning to the final, how it all ends. And uh, Titan bought all five books. They didn't do the usual, well, we'll buy three and see how it does. They said, we'll buy all five and let you finish the story. And uh, what I did is my two main characters, um, Tracy and Mercedes, uh, Tracy is a boy, his name is Thracius. Um, they, um, you meet them in the first book and they're 18. And when I finish the fifth and final book, they're going to be in their mid-50s. So you kind of get to follow them through their, their lives. And I've had a ton of fun writing it. So... And and but once I finish this fifth book, I've got to figure out, you know, what I'm doing next. I mean, I do have it's a big universe. I could go on with the younger generation if if Titan is interested. Um, I have a vague idea for a fantasy series, but it's still just a nugget of an idea. And I'm also going to be really busy doing wild cards. So it might be a while before I can get back to books, um, which I'm torn because I, I love writing books. But uh, but I'm really excited to be doing wild cards. Well, if anyone at CBS All Access or Paramount were to approach you about getting back, dipping back into the world of Star Trek, uh, would you uh, be interested? You know, I, I would be. I, I if I could if I could develop the show, the Star Trek show I've always wanted to do. I don't think there's any interest um, from CBS in talking to any of us who are alumni of the show. Um, none of us have been have been approached by uh, by the, the network or the studio. Um, I think they just um, they want to make a clean break and see what, you know, new people come up with. So um, I'm not holding my breath. I mean, I would I would be open to it, but I I, I would have a very different take. I, I think we've kind of done the Federation and starships to death. And I would like to see a wider view, a wider lens on that universe and not always have it be you know, set with with uh, starships and the Federation and officers and military officers. Um, but, you know, I, I doubt that's going to happen. <laughs> so um, and I have wild cards and I'd like to develop my uh, my uh, 
lawyer show, my woman lawyer in a vampire law firm. I'd like to develop that as a TV series as well. So that's going to be the once I get wild cards, you know, good and solidly started. I would like to try to go out and pitch my my law show, my my fantastical law show and see if I can get that set up, too. Okay, forgive my ignorance, but what is this about a, a vampire law firm? Yeah, I write. Um, I write. I wrote three urban fantasies under a pseudonym. Those are also you can. I think there's still pictures of them up on my website. Um, it's uh, my pseudonym is Philippa Bornakova, and uh, the books are about a young woman lawyer working in a vampire law firm in Manhattan. Uh, the first book is called "This Case Is Going to Kill Me." The second book is called Box Office Poison. And the third book is called Publish and Perish. Um, and uh, I had a lot of fun doing them. Uh, sadly, you know, my publisher, Tor, didn't didn't want to continue with the series. So I sort of wrapped it up. But, you know, that's it. You move on. Ideas are easy. Come up with a new idea and write a different thing. Is this a law firm whose clientele are vampires or whose attorneys? No, senior partners are. Although they do represent vampires, but their senior partners are all vampires. <laughs> so... And uh, there are werewolves working as bond traders and, you know, founding um, Blackwater, the mercenaries. And and the elves uh, have gone into rock and roll in Hollywood. So um, it's contemporary. I've had a lot of fun with it. I got to I got to play with my legal training again. OK. OK. That's about. Oh, yeah. And um, you are an equestrian. How many horses do you have? I have two. Um, I have they're both Lusitanos. It's a Portuguese horse. Um, similar in breeding to the Lippets Honor, but, but somewhat different, not as heavy bodied, not as small. Um, I have a stallion who is a Grand Prix horse and I have a young buckskin gelding who is a third level horse. He's, um, he's coming up. He's going to be my replacement Grand Prix horse when Vento gets too old. So, um, in fact, I'm going to be going to ride, uh, it's been a really busy August and I haven't gotten to ride anywhere near as much as I want. So, and when the show starts, it's going to be really hard for me to ride. So that's going to be one of the sad, good, but sad things. Good that I have the, the job and doing the show, but bad that I'm not going to be able to go ride my horses five days a week. So, but yeah, I, I love it. Riders tend to not move enough and, you know, physical activity is critical if you're going to be. If you're going to be successful at this. Yeah. Well, have you watched um, Star Trek Discovery? I watched the first episode um, and I wasn't inclined to spend nine dollars a month to watch anymore. Um, I mean, at some point I may. It's just there's so much good television. This really is the golden age of television. And uh, so I, you know, it's just not been on my list. Um, I I wish them well, but I, I have not watched past that first opening episode. Right, but you do have a legacy because I believe you were the first woman to act. No, was Dorothy Fontana a story editor as well? I don't. Well, Dorothy was a story editor on the original show, and yeah. I guess Next Generation. I think she was a producer. Yeah. When they when she came back on on that, so um, yeah, Dorothy is wonderful. I, I I've been fortunate enough to get to hang out with her at some parties out here, and and she's just great. So uh, it's a pretty good legacy that uh, you passed on. I, not that you personally said here have it, but that has been passed on of having women as story editors as being in charge. I believe Kristen Beyer, I'm not sure, but she is one of the writers producers on Discovery. So the business is changing. Um, women are becoming, you know, more and more of a factor um, in show running, and it's great, great to see. So. Right. Okay. Well, I understand, of course, that you. I met you. 
back in February here in Kansas City at Planet Comic Con. So you are still on the um, convention circuit, yes? Yeah, um, I just got back from Salt Lake City from FanX um, doing that convention. Uh, that was the last one for this year, and um, and how much I can do is going to depend on you know how heavy the workload is on wild cards. Um, so I'm I'm sort of uh, you know into the soon it will be the holidays and other things, and so I'm I'm off the con circuit until next year. And like I said, I'm going to have to see how much time I have for it, but I do enjoy going to them. And uh, interacting with fans and chatting about all the things that we love. Star Wars, Star Trek, all the cool stuff. Okay, well, we're winding things down, but before we go, it is time for Steve's Tough But Not Too Tough Trivia Challenge, if you don't mind. Okay, I'll try. (laughs) It'll be fun. It'll be fun. It's it's just silly. Don't take it too personal. I mean, don't take it too serious. Okay. Here we go. Question one. Uh, Let me lay down the rules. There will be a series of five questions. If you get three of them correct, you'll be qualified to move on to a sixth final bonus question. Um, and if you get three correct, if you get, let's try that again. If you get three correct, you will win a chance to impress your friends with your trivial knowledge and embarrass your children with the same. And if you get all five correct, there'll be the sixth uh, final bonus question. Okay. Okay. So, question one. Before being cast of Dr. Beverly Crusher on Star Trek's Next Generation, Gates McFadden was a well-known Hollywood choreographer who worked frequently with Jim Henson and the Muppets. Among her credits was choreography on the 1986 fantasy musical film Labyrinth. Which pop culture musical icon, also known as the Starman, was the star of Labyrinth? Oh, David Bowie. That's correct. That's one. Question two. Bernie Casey appeared in the two-part Deep Space Nine episode, The Maquis, as Lieutenant Commander Cal Hudson. Earlier in his career, he'd co-starred in the 1976 sci-fi film, The Man Who Fell to Earth. What pop culture musical icon known as the Starman was the star of The Man Who Fell to Earth? David Bowie. (laughs) Wow, that's correct. That's two out of five. Question three. Ethiopian model turned actress Iman appeared in the Star Trek film Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, as the Kamiloid Martia. What pop culture musical icon known as the Starman was Iman married to? I am seeing a trend here, David Bowie. (laughs) Question four. Iggy Pop appeared in the Deep Space Nine episode The Magnificent Ferengi as the Vorta Yelgren. Before embarking on an acting career, Iggy was a well-known musician who collaborated on 11 different albums with which pop culture musical icon known as the Starman? David Bowie. That's correct. Question five. Academy and the Emmy Award-winning writer, singer, song, singer-songwriter musician, actor Paul Williams, appeared in the Voyager episode Virtuoso as the Quomar Koru. Among his many compositions was a song called Fill Your Heart. Which pop culture musical icon known as the Starman recorded a version of Fill Your Heart for his 1971 album Hunky Dory? David Bowie. Absolutely. You got all five. So for the sixth and final question, which pop culture musical icon known as the Starman never actually appeared in Star Trek himself but probably should have? <laughs> David Bowie. <laughs> he would have been awesome. <laughs> it would have been great. Oh, no. The answer we were looking for is Paul Stanley, the Starman from Kiss. Okay, well, I would not have known that in a thousand years. Um, no, listen, wait, 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 wait. The judges are in my ear. They say the will accept David Bowie. Correct. Okay. Okay. I'm sorry. 
What were you saying? No, I I was just going to thank you for the opportunity to visit with you. So Okay, <laughs> let me finish this off. This is the Omega Directive. I am Steve Atwell, your host. My thanks go out to our guests, um, Melinda Snodgrass, writer for The Next Generation and author of several uh, books, uh, science fiction and fantasy, and who's also contributed to several television series, including the upcoming Somewhere on Your Dial wildcard series based on the best-selling series. My thanks will also go to Adam Mullen, who composed our theme song and who helped me figure out how to put a podcast together. Adam co-hosts, along with Bill Allen, a podcast on the Trek Sphere Network called The Final Frontier, which focuses on fan productions, fan films, and otherwise. And the, I need to say that the Omega Directive is available on iTunes. So if you like what you've heard, please subscribe, give us a positive rating, leave a positive review. You can also find it at podcast.com. Hopefully soon I'll have it some other platforms. And if you'd like to contact me with any questions, comments, or concerns, uh, the Omega Directive is available on Facebook, and I'm available on Twitter as Atwell underscore Steve. And otherwise, uh, Melinda, anything else you need to plug, anything you want to direct people to buy and purchase? I'm good. Thank you very much. Okay. Thanks for tuning in. Don't take any wooden quatloos. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.